Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You guys may be seated. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. Many of us distracted, busy, overwhelmed, anxious people, God. But God, I ask that we might sit under your word this morning, that your words would bring us life, that they would create new life in some today, that they would rejuvenate life in others, God. And I ask that um, your word truly would move in powerful ways. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. And God, I ask that what lasts today would be your words, not mine. I ask for the strength to preach it in your strength, not my own power, and that it would be done for your glory, not mine. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead, open up to the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, we'll have it up on the screen. But 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to be at today. Hopefully you guys have been uh, enjoying our time going through the book of 1 Peter. We are actually nearing our end of our 1 Peter series. We will hopefully uh, be wrapping up 1 Peter by the end of November in time for us to enter into a season of Advent here at church uh, during the month of December. And so all throughout 1 Peter, we've been reminded of this beautiful truth that we can have hope 
in hardships, that we can have hope in hardships, and that as Christians, we don't just endure hardships and pursue holiness, but many times we pursue holiness by enduring hardships. And then we've seen that our God is such a good God that many times he takes our hardships, turns them into blessings, and fills them with meaning. And so last week we saw that as Christians, we know we are going to have some hard days, okay? Following Jesus will lead to some hard days, but they will be good days because they are God's days, right? And God's blessings far outweigh our hardships. And so suffering is not the opposite of blessing, but suffering actually is a blessing because in the midst of it, we press deeper into God and lean harder into God and experience more of his grace and his goodness, and that is a good thing. That is a blessing, okay? So now we arrive here at 1 Peter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now let's, let's stop there for a second. Here Peter reminds us what we talked about last week in 1 Peter 3.18, which said, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So yes, you will experience suffering and hardship in life, but there is a true and better sufferer. His name is Jesus, and he suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. And so now he can be a sympathetic high priest. He can be an understanding advocate. Jesus is not like some privileged royalty that can't understand the hurting and the hardships of his kingdom people, right? All right it's not like he's some uppity, high-class, trust fund kid that can't understand the hurting peasants, right? He is calling us to walk a road of suffering, and it is a road that he has walked himself. So he has been through the hard road of suffering. So now he can be a sympathetic high priest. He can be an understanding advocate. Jesus is like, you get betrayed by your friends? Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Your family thinks you're crazy? Yep, I've experienced that as well. Jesus said, you got people that want to kill you? He's like, yeah, uh uh-huh. You've suffered beatings and persecutions for your faith? Jesus says, been there, done that, okay? You were sold out so that some fool could make some money? Yeah, He can relate. You had injustices committed against you. Jesus says, I've gone through that as well. So church, go to Jesus in your hardships and your suffering. He understands. He knows what you need. He knows how to comfort you because he is a sympathetic high priest. Yes, he is a king, but he is also a suffering servant. He's walked this road of suffering before. He's blazed the trail for us. So go to him in your hardships and your hurting. He does understand. He has walked the road of suffering as well. Because he has suffered, he can now be our sympathetic high priest. He can be our understanding advocate. We'll look back at 1 Peter 4. Uh, We'll read a few, few more verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
So verse one, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is a military term, okay? Arming yourselves. We are gearing up for action. We are gearing up for war. So be thinking, and the way we do that is we think the way Christ thinks, okay? So it says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Or it could also be put like 1 Corinthians 2.16, which says, but we have the mind of Christ. So we arm ourselves by thinking the way Christ thinks, okay? Living the way Christ lived, which is how? Look, look at the end of verse two. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We are to arm ourselves by having the mind of Christ and lives that desire the will of God instead of our own sinful, selfish desires, but saying this, saying this phrase, arming yourselves, think like Christ, live like Christ, it is, it is saying something way more deep and heavy than just saying, just go be like Jesus, okay? It's saying something way heavier than just put a WWJD bracelet on, right? What would Jesus do, right? And just go be like Jesus, all right? It's saying something heavier than that, okay? Now, certainly those bracelets were awesome, right? But it's saying something heavier because Peter just reminded us that Christ suffered. And so Peter is saying, you are to live for the will of God even if that includes suffering. Even if that includes suffering. And no, no middle class suburban American wants to hear that, okay? I get that. I get this isn't really a good church growth book to go through, talking about suffering when we're planting a church, okay? But I believe that while we might not want to hear this, we need to hear this, okay? So let me give you what you need to hear this morning, not necessarily what you want to hear this morning. And let me give you a little bit more of a picture of what the mind of Christ looks like. If we are to arm ourselves by having the mind of Christ, I want, to, I want to enter you in and show you just a glimpse of what the mind of Christ was like. So Matthew 26, 39, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then listen to this. Nevertheless, he says, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Why are times of hardship and suffering so frustrating, right? I don't know about you, but they are frustrating to me. When I go through hardship, go through suffering, I get confused. I get frustrated by it. They are frustrating because we are still trying to make God's will conform to our will, okay? That's the frustrating part, trying to take God's will and force fit it into what we think should be our will for our life. And even Christians, even followers of Jesus do this. Many times we have our own minds made up as to what we think will bring us the most joy and even maybe what we think will bring God the most glory. But we have our own wills and our own minds made up and maybe they've been Christianized a little bit because we've thrown some Christianity in there. But nonetheless, they are still our wills. And we want God's will to fit into our will. So even our careers, our goals, our pursuits, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, we have our will made up and settled, and then we try to make God's will fit into it. And when it doesn't work, we get frustrated. We get confused. I mean, go find all the frustrated, confused Christians and watch how they are wasting their lives trying to fit God's will into their will. 
That shoe does not fit, church, okay? That shoe does not fit. Church, the will of God is not something you try to force fit into your life, into the life that you already have shaped for yourself. No, your life is now formed and shaped by the will of God. And when the will of God is what is forming and shaping you, this is when real life begins and you are free to actually be who you were created to be and do what you were created to do. When our lives are submitted to God's will for our life and we quit fighting and trying to make this God's will somehow work into our will. The will of God will free us to be who we were created to be and do what we were created to do. The will of God shaping people's lives is what led believers to go to the Amazon and be speared to death so that a whole people group might be saved. The will of God is what led preachers to fearlessly preach the Bible even if they know they will be martyred or imprisoned. The the will of God is what leads our brothers and sisters in Iran to go dig their own graves before they confess faith in Christ. But no, we we want the will of God to fit into our will, don't we? And what, what do most of us want? I think most of us want happy, healthy, married, middle class, a white picket fence, two and a half well behaved honor roll kids, and a 401k, right? I think that's that's most of what we want. And listen, maybe that is God's will for you. Maybe it is. But I don't think that's the will of God for all of you. I really don't. Church, do you really want true joy and fulfillment? I I know I do. I want true joy and fulfillment. Living in the will of God is what will bring us joy and fulfillment. And if you don't believe me, put this theory to the test, okay? Go do some research. Go study and read about other people, how they're living their lives, okay? So I dare you to put this theory to the test. I not only dare you, I triple dog dare you to go do this, okay? Go do some research as to who the most joyful and fulfilled Christians have been. Go read the writings of missionaries and martyrs and people who have surrendered their lives and their passions for the will of God. Go read some Christian biographies. They are full of joy. They write of a closeness and a sweetness in communion with God that we can only imagine. And when I read that, that's what I want. I want that closeness and that sweetness and that communion with God. And that's what I want for all of you as well. They understood that God's will was what should shape their lives, not their own selfish wills. They understood that we shouldn't try to force fit God's will into our will, but say instead, even in the midst of suffering, not my will, but your will, God. To no longer live for human passions, but to live for the will of God, means that we will stop living for ourselves, and we will stop being, sorry, we will stop being governed by our own desires, emotions, and our own self-centeredness, okay? We are all self-centered, okay? First, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, though. It says, And he died for all, that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves. 
Nicolaus Copernicus was a Polish astronomer, all right? He was born in 1473. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's a pretty famous dude. He discovered what we now know, that the earth is not the center of the universe, okay? Before that time, everyone just assumed everything revolved around the earth, and Copernicus said, no, actually, the sun is what everyone, uh, what everything revolves around, okay? So it's okay if you don't know much about astronomy. Some of you, if you've maybe watched Brian Regan, you at least know the big yellow one is the sun, okay? So that's what Copernicus discovered. The yellow one is the sun, and everything revolves around it, okay? And this was groundbreaking news that everything didn't revolve around the earth, right? Groundbreaking news. And I've got just as groundbreaking news for you this morning, okay? And this might solve a lot of your problems and frustrations, so hear me on this. You are not the center of the universe. Okay? I know, profound. That's, we can maybe stop there. I think that's enough for us to chew on this week, right? You are not the center of the universe. And I'll be honest, I've sort of fantasized about this one day. If someday our church has an office, I would love to hang a, a model of our solar system just like from, from the ceiling, somewhere in the office. And then if I'm doing some counseling and someone's talking, you know, telling me about all the problems, frustrations, you know, woe is me, all this stuff, I would kind of just be strolling around the room, maybe holding a pipe. That's kind of how I envisioned it. Um, and I would walk over to the solar system and I would say, you know, I hear all your problems and frustrations. I hear you. But you see, this big yellow one is actually the sun. And everything revolves around it, meaning everything does not revolve around you. Okay? And all of your problems would probably make better sense to you if you realize that you are not the point. This isn't all about you. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then I would refer them on to Pastor Gary for further counseling needs, okay? But that's, that's kind of what I fantasize. That's maybe someday. Maybe someday, not my will, but God's will. We'll see. Okay. Um, but let us then no longer try to fit God's will and plans into ours, but instead hand over our plans and submit to God's will for our lives. May we be a people that could truly say, not our will, but your will, God. Now let's real quick clarify a couple of things in these verses, and then we're going to keep moving, okay? So verse 1 says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So is this saying that Christians who suffer, they are now perfect and they don't sin? Is that what this is saying? No, that is not consistent with the rest of Scripture, okay? We know 1 John 1.8 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, okay? So we know that here on earth, even though Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, taken the power of the sin, sin's presence still remains, and we still are tempted, and we won't reach any, any sort of perfection here on earth. So this isn't saying that we are sinless, but that as Christians, and especially Christians who are willing to be obedient, even if that means suffering, they show the reality that their hearts are dead to sin, okay, and alive to God. So it's not saying that we, we have the ability now to stop all sinning, that we will never sin ever again. No, we know Christians aren't sinless. They worship a sinless Savior, but the reality that they now live out willing to be obedient, willing to live for God's will, it's showing the reality that their hearts are dead to sin. Okay, Romans 6, 11, and 12 says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. So Christians are not sinless people, 
They are people who worship a sinless savior, and they are people who are freed from the penalty and the power of sin. But our hearts, our wills, our desires, they are no longer enslaved to the sin, even though uh, temptation to sin, yes, it still remains. Also, a quick clarification is needed in verse six, okay? Verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, we don't have the time to really go deep into this, but we certainly can outside of a Sunday morning uh, if we need to. This verse is referring to believers who have experienced physical death, okay? Remember, Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing hardship, persecution, and suffering, and he wants to reassure them that their brothers and sisters who are dying for their faith, that are physically dying, that they are not missing out on Christ's return and the kingdom of God. But he's saying, no, even though they've experienced physical death, their spirits now live on. Now, what this is not saying, let me clarify what this is not saying. It's not saying that people after death have a second chance, so to speak, at salvation, okay? Some people have used this verse in other passages, uh, like the passage from last week, to say that people can turn to Christ in hell and still be saved, okay? And so we need to clarify that is not what this is saying. That is, that is false teaching, and like any false teaching, it does sound good and nice. The only problem we have with it is actually the Bible, okay? So we know that after death comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then in Luke 16, it speaks of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. They both died. One, one went to a place of torment. One went to Abraham's side. And we read in Luke 16, verse 26, that the rich man in anguish cries out to Abraham, and Abraham answers. He says, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Okay, so we see that there is this great chasm between a place of torment and a place of paradise that cannot be crossed. But then probably even more convincingly is that we know salvation is from God. Salvation is of God. And Jesus doesn't need a second chance to save his people, okay? He doesn't need a second chance to save his people. He doesn't need a discount double check to make sure he got all his savings, okay? It's done. He, he, no one takes his, his people away from him, right? We know that the Father gives to him all who will come to him, right? Or, uh, sorry, let me say it again. All that the Father gives to him will come to him, and no one will snatch us out of his hand. And at the end of the day, people do not need more chances. They need new hearts, okay? They need new hearts. Jesus doesn't need a second chance to save his people. Well, let's keep moving. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. If the end of all things is at hand, then I think we need to prioritize how we spend our time. Peter mentions two of the big things we should be about. Prayer and love. Prayer and love. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we must turn from our former passions, and instead of living out our will and desires, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we might get after it in prayer. Okay? Our prayers will be much more effective and in tune with God's will if we are self-controlled and sober-minded or alert and not intoxicated with and deluded with all of our sinful passions. 
And as a church, we want to set a precedent here for being in a healthy rhythm of prayer. And so in January, we're again going to take three weeks of intentional times of prayer where our sermons will be a little shorter. They'll be based on, we'll be teaching on prayer or other spiritual disciplines. And then we'll have more time for corporate prayer during the Sunday gathering. And then all throughout the week, we're going to open up the church in the mornings to be able to gather together for prayer. We're going to stop meeting, planning, strategizing, or doing anything and we are just going to pray at the start of 2018, okay? We believe 2018 will be a very fruitful season and a foundational season for this church, and we don't want to do anything or get ahead of ourselves until we again just stop and pray. So the first three weeks of January will be all about getting after it in prayer, okay? Our time is short, so we are to pray. And then what else are we to do? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly or intently, deeply, continuously. And and I want you guys to hear this from Romans 13, verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We'll stop there in Romans. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Followers of Jesus should be marked by our love. They should know that we are Christians by our love. And listen, in the context of this verse, it is certainly talking about loving one another and that when we love one another, we show grace to one another. And so when we are wronged, when when sins are committed against us, Because of the love we have for one another, we're gracious with one another, we forgive one another, and we work it out for reconciliation. So in that way, yes, love does cover a multitude of sins when we are loving one another well. But this also points to the true and greater love of Jesus, who has covered the infinitely great amount of sin of his people. Jesus is the true love that covers a multitude of sins. And I can talk all I want about how we should pray not our will, but your will, right? I can, I can try to talk you guys and convince you to do that, to go out and say, yes, I want to be conformed to the will of God. But the truth is, we will struggle to be conformed to the will of God until we realize we are covered by the love of God, okay? We will struggle to be conformed to the will of God until we realize we are covered by the love of God. You see, ever since sin entered into the world, human beings, we've been looking for a covering, right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they realized they were naked. They tried to make fig leaves, right, to cover themselves. God eventually then gave them a a temporary but a better covering when he gave them a covering of animal skins. But ever since then, human beings, we've been trying to cover ourselves, okay? And this is mainly played out in a works-based righteousness. We've tried to do it ourselves. We've tried to do enough good works and righteous acts to cover our sin, to cover ourselves so that we would be good. And those that don't do that just eventually run and hide from God because they also want to be covered from God. You see, if you've ever put your will in front of God's will, that is sin, and we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of being perfectly aligned to God's will. 
And we know since sin has entered in the world, we are also now born with a sin nature, a propensity to sin. We now all have a propensity to want to make ourselves the big yellow one, right, at the center. We all want to be the God of our universe. We all want to be the Lord of our lives. We all want God's will to conform to our will. And the effects of sin are devastating on us and on our world. First, sin causes death. Okay, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. In every funeral that I'm at, I sit there and I just can't help feel that just something, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Like, like this isn't how it's, all, and I know it's not how it's always going to be, but something about death, right, it just doesn't feel natural. It's because death entered in when sin entered in. Because of sin, we also deserve God's wrath. There is a holy and righteous justice that is carried out when a perfectly holy God comes upon sin. Sin also causes separation from God. A perfectly holy God does not dwell with sin just like light doesn't hang out with darkness because light would overtake and obliterate the darkness. Sin also causes us to be in bondage. We are enslaved by our sinful desires, habits, and addictions. But God, two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God saw the effects of sin and because of his love for us sent Jesus who was fully God and fully man and he sent him to deal with sin once and for all. And Jesus saw sin's effects in the world. He lived it. He walked that road. He had, a, you know, Lazarus, his friend, die and, and Jesus wept over that. He felt the effects of sin. So Jesus set out to put to death, death. Jesus set out to put to death, death. Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And his perfectly obedient life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection was the perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sin in our place. Jesus saw the effects of sin that now people were under the wrath of God. So Christ set out to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's sort of a churchy word that we don't always understand, but what it means is that he appeased God's wrath or he covered us and he turned God's wrath into favor. He appeased God's wrath, turned his wrath into favor, and Jesus covers us. And now we can be unconditionally loved by God because the conditions have been met by Christ. Okay, you ever wondered why we can be unconditionally loved by God? It's because Christ met the conditions on our behalf. Jesus also saw the separation of God, uh, that, that sin caused from us and God. We were separated from him, and so he set out to overcome this separation and bring us to God. Remember our verse from last week, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered that he might bring us to God. He saw the separation, and what Jesus accomplished was reconciliation, okay? We can now enjoy the beautiful truth that we are reconciled to God and to one another, and we can experience community with God and with one another. And then Jesus saw the bondage of sin. He saw God's people enslaved to their sinful desires, lusts, and passions, and so Christ accomplished redemption for us. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He ransomed us by his precious blood that sin would no longer have power over us and that we would not be enslaved to it. 
And all of these things that Christ accomplished, all of these things we've been talking about, is why we can say like Paul did in Philippians 3, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And this is why it's so beautiful to hear Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. To be hidden with Christ, to be in Christ is good news. Because we know that sin has caused death, wrath, separation, bondage. But now in Christ, instead of death, we have life. Instead of wrath, we get grace. Instead of separation, we have community. And instead of bondage, we have freedom. And so it is good to be in Christ. Amen? It is good to be in Christ. And this morning, if you are unsure, if you are in Christ and he is stirring in your heart, do not push him aside and do not put that off. But repent and believe. Okay, repent and believe. Those are also sometimes some churchy words that we don't fully understand. So instead of saying repent and believe, we can almost say turn and trust. Turn and trust, okay? First, turn from your sin. Confess to God that you have put your will above his will, that you have been the God of your universe, that you have been the Lord of your heart, and turn from that sin and turn to God, and then trust. Trust that Jesus is God. Trust that Jesus' perfectly obedient life, his death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead has accomplished your salvation. Trust that it is only by God's grace, his undeserved favor. There is nothing you could do to earn it or work for it, but it is only by grace. Salvation is a gift of God that all we do is receive. And then travel with Jesus, okay? Follow Jesus the rest of your life. Learning about him and his word, submitting to his lordship in your life. When you come to Jesus, it is a complete surrender of your will, and it is a complete surrender to his lordship and that he is God and you are not. And while following Jesus might lead to some hard days, we know that they are good days because they are God's days. We know that he is with us and will walk with us through the hardships. God is with us and his love covers us and gives us life grace, community, and freedom. And my prayer this morning, and I hope that your prayer, even in the quietness of your own heart this morning, would be that this would be happening here, as well as throughout our city, as well as throughout our county, as well as throughout our area, that more and more people would come to be in Christ and covered by the love of God. When we are covered by God's love, it will propel us and compel us to love and serve one another. Look at the back at 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
One way that God shows his love to us is that he gives good gifts to his people. And so when you are saved, when you trust Christ, God gives what the Bible calls spiritual gifts or gifts of grace. And there are other passages in the Bible that list out some of those gifts of grace, but even those aren't necessarily exhaustive. A spiritual gift or a gift of grace is any ability you have that is empowered by the Spirit and is used for the glory of God and the good of his people, the church. So if you are in Christ, you have been given gifts. And these are good gifts because God doesn't give bad gifts, okay? And part of being conformed to the will of God by the love of God is understanding how God wants to use these gifts of grace uh, and how he wants us to be used for his glory and our good. God loves to give good gifts to his people through his people, okay? God loves to give good gifts to his people through his people. What he is stirring and working in you, this is a gifting which is ultimately meant not to stop with you. But instead, you are being blessed to be a blessing. That should be flowing through you out onto the other people of God, okay? Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, God gives much to you that you may give it to others. It is only meant to run through you as a pipe You are a steward, and if a steward should receive his Lord's goods and keep them for himself, he would be an unfaithful steward. Child of God, see to it that you faithfully discharge your responsibility as one of the good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Part of being conformed to the will of God by the love of God is not using or holding on to our giftings for selfish gain, but instead using them, letting them flow through us, like Spurgeon says, right, for God's glory and the good of his people. But in our insecurity and selfishness and pride, we often hold on to our gifts for ourselves. We settle to pay the professionals. We, we want to just go to a church service and watch someone else use their giftings. And look, praise God for pastors. I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job here, but each and every one of you has a gift that you should be using for the good of the church. These gifts were given to you to flow through you and to bless God's people. God is trying to give good gifts to his church through his people Do not stop or hinder that work, but as a faithful steward, be willing to let God's gifts flow through you out onto his people. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't don't have any gifts. And I get it. Sometimes it is hard to see your own gifting, but this is why this needs to be done in community, right, with one another, because many times others can speak truth and affirm our giftings that they see. Because a lot of times we have these passions, desires, and giftings, but we just assume that everyone else has those same things as well. But many times, no, it's not. Actually, many of us have very unique callings and passions and giftings, which is why God has brought us all together so that those unique giftings could be used for a specific purpose in this context. So church, speak into one another's lives, okay? Affirm in one another the giftings that you see in one another, And then, church, when you are made aware of these giftings, do not let selfish or silly things stand in the way of these gifts flowing through you. Your gifts are from God to flow through you for the glory of God and the good of his people. 
Do not let insecurity or timidness hinder you from doing that. Because when you use your gifts the way they were intended to be used, it's not done in your power. It's not up to your strength. Because it's not for your glory. Verse 11, whoever speaks as the one who speaks the words of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And it is the giver of gifts who will make sure you have the words and the strength you need when you give these gifts to his people. So if you are holding on to the gifts that God has given you, let me lovingly say, get over yourself, okay? It's not about you. Let me call you into my office and remind you that the big yellow one is actually the sun, right? It's not about you. And church, let me tell you, there is nothing sweeter than using the gifts of grace for God's glory and the good of his people. I mean, those are the times that I can tangibly feel the closeness of God, the fullness of the Spirit, and the joy of the Lord when I'm participating in his work with his gifts for his glory. And that is not just a calling for pastors. I want that for all of you as well. I want you to experience the sweetness of the Lord when you are participating in his work with his gifts for his glory. Those are sweet, sweet times that we should be chasing after. We should want that. Part of being conformed to his will by being covered with his love is learning how to use these gifts of grace for his glory and our good. Well, in conclusion, on the night of October 1st, 2017, during a concert on the Las Vegas Strip, a gunman opened fire from a hotel room on the crowd below. 58 people were killed. Many more were wounded. And to read and hear the stories of that horrific night, it's very sobering, it's very saddening. But there was a picture that went viral from that night that I came across that really stuck with me. And it was a picture of a young man named Matthew Cabos, a young U.S. Army soldier. And Matthew, instead of running away from the danger zone, actually ran into the danger zone. And people were telling stories about how he was plugging bullet holes on people, that he was using his belt and his clothes to make tourniquets, and he was dragging people to safety. But the picture that stuck with me was him in the middle of all this carnage and death and bullets ricocheting all around, Matthew was there laying over and covering a woman so that she would not be hit. And man, I thought, this young guy, running into the chaos, running into the death, willing to lay down his life to cover and save this person. And then it hit me. That picture of him covering that person, that is what it looks like to be in Christ. That is a picture of our lives being hidden with Christ. That is a picture of a love that covers. The reason we can arm ourselves for suffering is because God's love covers us. The reason we can break 
free from sin is because God's love covers us. The reason we can submit to and conform to God's will is because God's love covers us. The reason we can love one another earnestly is because God's love covers us. The reason we are compelled to serve others is because God's love covers us. The reason we have been given gifts to bless others is because God's love covers us. The reason we can speak words of God to one another is because God's love covers us. The reason we can serve one another in the strength of God is because God's love covers us. The reason we can glorify God instead of ourselves is because God's love covers us. To be covered in God's love is a glorious thing. To be in Christ, to be hidden with him is a beautiful reality. And now we are free and protected to be conformed to the will of God by the love of God, for the glory of God, and the good of his people. Pray with me this morning.